Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One third of all murder cases in America remain open. He had told me that if I opened my eyes, he would slit my throat. Each one is called a cold case. The DNA evidence taken from the victim was a match. The linen rapist was at it again. Based on the hit A&E television program. A phone call is placed. One that changes a family's life forever. Cold Case Files, the podcast. If you could see the fire in his eyes, he screamed at me. You want it? Get your tape recorder out. Get new episodes of Cold Case Files every Tuesday on Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Doctor Who Podcast, everybody. Uh, be sure to keep the wind in the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship and support the people that support us here. We do appreciate it. We check, we try to select these people carefully, and uh, we stand behind them. And uh, I'm going to be at Caroline's on August 29th uh, on Broadway, so... We're going to do a live After Dark show, so come bring your questions. We'll watch some crazy videos. And uh, Kat Timp, uh, Rich Voss will be helping me out. And a uh, special meet and read afterwards. If you go to doctor.com, you find the details there. It's my privilege to welcome my friend, philosopher warrior, Ryan Holiday. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So it's you helped out always. on the A&D show. Uh, how was that experience for you? That's like a dream. Yeah, I grew the, up listening to Love Line so long. It's uh, I can't really wrap my head around it. So <laughs> that you were just with the both of us. Yeah. Well, you, you most some people that have that experience, you know, where they're Love Line fans, will just sit back and watch us. And that was a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny to me. Now, was it uh, everything you imagined it would be? Sure. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so the new book is "Stillness Is the Key." Uh, you know, while we were doing AD, I was thinking to myself, "What do I want Ryan to write about next?" What would his, do you have an idea for your next book yet? Are you already writing it? I, I do. I don't want to say. I'll, uh, tell, I'll tell you off the air. Okay. Because I was just – it's it's got to be something in response to the opposite of stoicism that we're seeing in the world today. Yes. Yeah. And I was thinking, how can you frame that? Because I do think stillness is the opposite of the world today. Well, stillness sort of – yes, but it also fills out your philosophical yes. lexicon, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it – there's a lot of stillness, particularly in the Eastern philosophies and things, and mm-hmm. you get into that more. And I was surprised how much was in the earlier philosophical lexicon too, like Pascal and these guys who came up a surprisingly amount in your in your in your book. Yeah, I mean, 500 years ago, Pascal goes, "All of man's humanity, all of humanity's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly isn't in a that, room alone." Isn't that crazy? I'm like, yep, that's it. You nailed it. You didn't mention. I don't think I didn't catch at least his wager in the book. Uh, yeah, you know, I should have. I should have. Well, done I don't that. know about it, but I, 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 when you were, I was reading it, I thought to myself, I wonder what Ryan's thought are about Pascal's wager. Well, because I, I have a section in there on sort of higher power, um, and <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm talking about higher power more in the the more in from the angle of surrender that the pro- so much of the problem of our world today is that we think we're the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. And in, a w- in that way, we are all addicts. We are all like addicts, right? Yep. We, yep. We, and and even, our, even if we're not addicts, we look down, oh, they make them accept a higher power. It's like, no, the idea is, is, is just, is primarily admitting you're not number one. Not just not number one, but that you're not in control. 
Yes. I mean, you're in control of you, but you're not in control of what happens, which is, again, a sort of a stoic principle. Totally. And, 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 and there's it, just humility in, in going like, oh, yeah. I don't know how the universe works. Oh, I yeah. don't know. Well, addicts have this strange – they always have this strange sense. They, they, there's two ways of, that they'll describe it to me. Like, I feel like the whole world's on my shoulders. I'm a, like they're, But they really are trying to control everything. They're in control all the time. But the other piece of it is they feel like a piece of shit around which the whole world revolves. Yes. Yeah. Well, I talk about that in the book too. Like I say, you know, egomania and imposter syndrome are the exact same thing. You are obsessed with the idea that everyone is thinking about you. No. And no one is thinking about you. <laughs> That's right. It's no true. one thinks you're a fraud. No one knows you <laughs> exist. No one cares. Yeah. They're thinking about themselves. They are having the same – they are running the same insecure monologue in their head that you are doing. Of course. And if we could all let go, we could be present and enjoy each other and what we're – what our talents are and we could have confidence. And so I, I do think Pascal's Wager is interesting for people who don't know it. It's this idea like we don't know if God exists, but he might. And since he might, you should be a good person and more or less follow – Religious doctrine because uh, the costs of being wrong are very, very high. Right. He's wagering it all on the possibility. Yes. And, and Give, given that the benefits are so fantastic yes. that it's worth the wager. And, and I guess what, like, so what the Stoics would say is they go, like, you know, a Christian says, like, uh, don't do this because God says, don't do this. Or they say, don't do this because you'll go to hell if you do. I think the Stoics are basically saying, I think this is wh- wh- where I come down. They're like, don't be a bad person, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, because your life will be hell. It's not a good life, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's true. And so I, I, I guess the, the, the reason that Pascal's wager does not seem that much of a wager to me is like what you're saying is like, you're, it's like, hey, if you exercise and eat healthy, you might uh, meet the woman of your dreams. It's true. You also will just feel better. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so – right. So so right so you're just leading a good life so what's wrong with that it's a pretty good it's a pretty good uh, empiric process even if the wager is not even there yeah like what are you really giving up I mean right. provided that you think that being a good Christian or whatever is you know following the more reasonable principles in the Bible it's not becoming some uh, you know uh, extreme monk who whips right. themselves or you know as, as long as you're like hey like I'm gonna love my neighbor and I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. If, if that's what it takes to get into heaven, and so we're wagering like just, uh, okay, but I, that means I can't kill anyone. I definitely can't kill my neighbor. You know, I have to – I have some obligations to my parents. These don't seem like that much like enormous sacrifices. Right. It, it, although when, when I think about the wager itself, I think to myself, well, from my perspective, this this life is – Everything. Yes. And if you're wagering that, you're wagering a lot yes. because you're wagering what the, the, the fullness and richness of this life on behalf of some notion of some something later. Now, the reality of that wager allows you to leave a good life here and that's yes. fine. So there's no, no consequence yeah. to the, the contrary. Totally. Let's take a quick call here. This guy's waiting a little while. And uh, Ryan Holiday, of course, the stillness is the key of the book. Matthew, go ahead. Hey, uh, Dr. Drew. Hey, Ryan. How are you guys doing? Hey. Um, Drew, I'll make this quick because sh- I know you've gotten it before. I remember even hearing someone ask it. I just can't remember your take on it. Okay. Um, this is someone newly getting into uh, to therapy. I'm going to yeah. start out with some CBT therapy. Okay. And um, just in general, what is where do you find the balance between trying to make sure you find the right 
fit and right person for you. Cause I'm kind of worried that I'm going to just, you know, overthink it and, and, you know, keep going thinking maybe I should see someone else or someone else or, uh, well, or just kind of sitting with someone and going through the processes. Maybe what, more what, uh, what are the issues? What are you trying to deal with? Um, a little bit of, uh, a little bit with marijuana addiction, but then, um, also just in terms of, um, being more, um, kind of a little bit like what you guys were saying with the imposter thing, just being able to better to be able to express myself better around people and to, um, I don't know, just not, not withhold as much and just be more open and, uh, right. kind of work on just interpersonal relationships right. as well. So you're kind of an ideal candidate for CBT, really. I mean, all, everything you're talking about is evidence-based improved with CBT. So that should be good. Uh, generally speaking, I advise people to look for a therapist with specific letters after their name, right? MD, mm-hmm. PhD, PsyD. So at least you know the level of training is at a level – that you can really rely on the professionalism and the, and the quality. Now, there are plenty of excellent MFTs and LCSWs. Uh, LCSWs particularly tend to make very good therapists. But in terms of, you know, one of the sort of ways to approach finding a therapist is you first go to a psychiatrist, get a proper workup, get a diagnosis, and then you have that person refer you to the therapist that's best suited to the condition you've got. That's sort of the ideal way to do it. But uh, in terms of what you're contending with, it sounds like you're like on the right track here. So uh, stick with it. Don't don't second okay. guess. They're gonna make you. They're gonna talk to you about stopping the pot, though. You may not like that. No, no, I, I know. I'm I'm ready to hear it. It's it's been. I, I'm at the point you always talk about where I'm just kind of over it, and yeah. I've actually significantly, significantly cut back. But good. um, good. It's. Uh, I know in time I, I'm gonna probably end up cutting it out completely. That but, may that um, may. Be all you need to do, frankly. A lot of yeah, stuff exactly. take care of itself. I just kind of want to fast track it so I'm not here in my mid-40s saying the same stuff. So. Yeah, good for you. All right, man. Good luck, Matthew. All right. all right. Thank you very much. Take care. Have a good night. Bye-bye. So let's go back to the, the various books and the philosophies you're following. The Silicon Valley guy seemed to have picked up your stuff, right? Yeah. Does that surprise you? Uh, no, no. I mean, uh, Stoicism seems to be this philosophy that – is popular with extremely powerful and extremely powerless people. And the idea that Silicon Valley wouldn't be filled with people of both types. Isn't that interesting? I would not have picked Do you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. Marcus well, Aurelius, said, look, the emperor, yeah, yeah. Epictetus, the slave, yeah. everyone in between. There you go. And, and I've always said that the very rich and the very poor have much more in common with each other than with the rest of us. It's, yeah. it's a weird thing. When I first started working at a psychiatric hospital, that was all that was there. The very poor and the very rich. I thought, wow, same Conditions too, in both populations. Yeah, and 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 I think in Silicon Valley, particularly with the people who are doing well, is your your your. It's like on Maslow's hierarchy. All the stuff is taken care of. You thought you'd be happy when you were successful. You thought you'd be happy when you were important. You thought you'd be happy when you sold the first company and you proved everyone who doubted you for dropping out of college. Blah 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 blah. You thought you'd suddenly be great with women. You know, you thought you thought all these things, and then you're like, oh, I'm still the same guy. Life sucks. You know? Do do you hear that from them, or do they do they sort of gradually feel the satisfaction of those successes, but they never really get 
or they keep dropping back or they never get where they want to go. I think, I think you just wake up one day. I don't think it's just like epiphany. I'm not a big believer in epiphanies. Yeah. I think, I think the reason they've made their way to my books or they've, they've started doing these things is they're, they're just searching. Yeah. You know, like Walker Percy would say to not be on, onto the search is to be in despair. Right. And he's this sort of great stoic novelist. And, and I think what he was saying is like, if, if if you have to if you have to wake up and go this is it yeah. that's bad yeah so if you can go if if you're like hey I'm gonna pick up a book I'm gonna listen to a podcast I'm going to do this challenge I'm gonna follow this Instagram account you're you're just you're it's easier than admitting hey none of this has any meaning for me and it starts to put you on a path and then yeah maybe you start taking a cold shower or you start quoting things it, it's a it's a but again. And I was actually just while I was, while I was sitting here, I was emailing this journalist who was writing me just then about you know this trend. I was like, I don't think anyone is upset by this trend except for journalists. Which trend? The 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 trend of she was like, what does it say that these middle class, upper middle class, mostly white guys are reading a philosophy that talks to them about accepting the hardships of life, you know, or or that talks about you know tolerating the status quo rather than being an activist who tries to change it. And I was like, look, of all the things these people could be doing— Tolerating the status quo. Of all these things people could be doing, this is the least bad possible thing. And and I was saying, like, I don't think any real people are upset by this. But it's also just a preposterous notion that stoicism is about accepting the status quo. I I was going to say, what does that have to do with stoicism? George Washington's favorite favorite philosophy is stoicism. Like, this is not a guy who was like, oh, I like the status quo. (laughs) This is a guy who... Stay with the crown. No big deal. Right. This is a guy who changes the... creates the nation we currently live in because he was a deep believer in human agency. But you can have a deep belief in human agency and accept and acknowledge the complete powerlessness of humans over so many things in the world. And are these white guys? I mean, Silicon Valley is a big mix. Well, you know, if you're a journalist trying to sort of whip up outrage, yeah. the idea that a guy from Latvia and a guy from Asia and, you know, a, a guy from Finland, a guy from England, and then a guy from Ohio, these are all white guys to you, even though that's actually an incredibly diverse list of human beings. Absolutely. But, you know, this is, we, we live in a world where, strangely, race has suddenly become very important. Oh, my God. Now I'm dying to know what your next book is going to be. I can tell <laughs> you've been thinking about this stuff. I can tell what... What can you tell me without divulging too no, much? No, no, it has nothing to do with that. I would, I don't want to touch that with a ten thousand. No, no, I don't mean race so much, but as this sort of lumping and whipping up outrage and. Yeah, I mean, I, I it is strange. Like to go to that point, I think it is like I remember being a kid. Now I'm probably sounding a little bit like Adam, but I, I remember being a kid. The whole idea was like race was not important, and I realized that, and gender was not important, and I realized that 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 idea also tolerated like in in even my own life i've seen horrible things tolerated by society whether you know it's the harvey weinsteins of the world or or whatever so i'm not saying it was perfect but i I thought progress was race becoming less important i don't understand why race is now the thing that i hear about all the time like i I was at this political thing uh yesterday and uh, uh a guy got up and he had to say he was like look like i'd love to vote for a democrat um I'm a white guy. It seems like the party doesn't is not only not speaking to me, is speaking to everyone but me, and I'm the enemy. 
Yeah. You know, he's like, what does that mean? And and I was just like, how sad is that question that like the idea of white people as an interest group has now been created almost because we've so focused on everyone else's identity when really, again, all this shit is made up. Like black people are just slightly more tanned white people. Like they, we're all exactly the fucking same. And that's what to me progress is moving towards that idea that people are people – Marcus Aurelius, like, I love the idea that Marcus Aurelius is quoting this slave, uh, uh, this old slave Ever in his book. Yeah, that it, the people are people. And that's, uh, that's where we should be moving. But instead, we seem to be moving towards the opposite. Tribes. Towards yes. tribes. <clears throat> and so how has going so deep into all this stuff affected your life? Um, I mean, in, in – on a sort of practical character level, it's like, oh, this is what you should do. This is what you should not do. I feel like it's made me a better person, better father. So you make better choices. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, I'm even conscious of the choices. Like the idea yeah. that like um, the choices matter. And is, is it as simple as trying to do the right thing? Yeah. At all times? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I keep a, a, a coin in my pocket uh, and it has a quote from Marcus Aurelius on it. And he says, just that you do the right thing, the rest doesn't matter. Like, and I love that idea because to the Stoic, like, sure, yes, you want to bring about outcomes that change in the world. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you like they say in football, like the score takes care of itself. All you can do is play well and score points. You can't, uh, you, you can't control the refs. You can't control the weather. You can't control if someone gets hurt. You really can only control whether you're blocking the guy that you're assigned to block. Like, right. That's our level of and, – and so the Stoic is like, look, you're just going to do the right, the right thing. And it's not consequences be damned, but it's certainly negative consequences to yourself be damned. Like you're not going to let the fact that uh, people are going to hate you for saying the truth stop you from saying the truth. But uh, that's to your your point. The uh, other coin that that I look at every day is the one about fate, not just – Morfati? Yes, totally. I mean that's – I think they're part and parcel of the same thing. It's like – Well, not in my head. One is living a certain kind of life. Yes, and the other is dealing with a certain kind of life. Yeah, I, I just I just way. mean like to, so amor fati on the front of that coin, uh, and amor fati is a m o r space f a t i, and it just means you love everything that happens. Love you fate. embrace. Love, you fate. love fate. Yeah, and and the image there is is deliberate. It's a it's a fire because Marcus Realis was saying what you throw in front of a fire is fuel for the fire. So like people go, "Oh, the world is so awful, it's so unfair, um, you know, or things are so hard." And the stoke would be like, "Yes, but this is all an opportunity to do the right thing." Like I you know, this is like is shitty times make for heroes, right? I'm not saying I'm a hero, but the stoics are just saying like you you it is what it is, so you got to be who you have to be. And the the actual statement is not just to uh, tolerate fate, but to love it. Yeah, it's, Nietzsche is the one who coins a morfati. He's not a Stoic, but he's sort of interested in Stoicism. But yeah, he says uh, not merely to bear what is necessary or what happens, but to love it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just okay, this is what happened, but it's like this is it. To, to Nothing me, else. For I didn't realize that was a Nietzschean statement. For, yes. But for him, that must go to his eternal recurrence theme. Yeah, which is that live your life in such a way that if this was just lived over and over and over again eternally. It would be perfect. Yeah, I think that's right because maybe that's what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like yeah. we don't know. And so there's a certain kind of just both humility but also empowerment in the idea of like I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm going to try to live by a kind of a code or a standard of behavior. 
It doesn't matter if people don't appreciate it. It doesn't matter if I'm hated for it. It doesn't matter if everyone else is getting away with doing the opposite, you know? Because you know. You mentioned shitty times make for heroes. That makes me think immediately about Grant, yes. who, who is your hero. It's one of yours too, right? Well, it became I mean, as a result of one biography I wrote, yeah. read, and you you read a bunch of them. So talk to me a little about, about his stoicism. I just, I just love Grant as this human being. I mean, he, he has this sort of shitty father who's always getting into trouble. He's this big personality, and he has this like really quiet mother. And Grant sort of is like, I'm not going to be like that guy. I'm going to... I'm going to be a sort no one thought he was a star. He barely makes it into West Point. He shows up there and he's like, this, I'd rather die than go here. But he guts it out. He comes out as a pretty decent student. He makes his way through the army, sort of struggles with alcoholism. The outbreak of the Civil War basically has this guy selling firewood by the side of the road. He did well in the Mexican-American War, though. Yes, he, yes. He, there's all kinds of reports of him as a horseman and sure, him sure. having zero fear under fire. Which and, makes the selling firewood by the side of the road almost more painful, right? It's well, like, he just fell apart after that. And I don't know if it was PTSD or what, but he just did not do well after he served. I mean, there's a line from Grant in his memoirs where he basically goes, he's like, the Civil War was the greatest reason a war was ever fought. And he's like, the Mexican-American War might be the worst reason a war was ever fought, at least in America. There's, and by the way, just for a little historical context, I didn't realize until I read his biography, we took over Mexico City. We went yeah. all the way, and Grant was the guy that took over the city. Yeah, yeah. We he, basically he, he just was in charge. We're basically just a, a complete, utterly unjustifiable war of conquest right. for the expansion of slavery. Uh, or, or, or not really that clear, but, but, but it was President um, Van – which one was it, Van Buren? I think it's Polk. Polk was it Polk? Or Polk or Pierce? It was Polk. You're right. It, well, it might have been Pierce. You're right. But but uh, Lincoln had a very famous. It was Polk because Polk kept he had kept going at Polk when he was in the Congress for he put, kept submitting these spot resolutions. Show me the spot where American blood yes. was spilled to justify the American American the Mexican American War, which yeah. there of course never was one. My favorite Grant story. This is sort of around the firewood time. So this guy is like at rock bottom. He's it's like you graduate from Harvard and now you're working at a gas station. Yeah. That's like this fall. Yeah. And so Grant had always been opposed to slavery. His father was was opposed to slavery. Um, and then his wife, uh, Grant's wife, inherits a slave. And Grant is trying to carve this farm out of like the worst, you know, just garbage ground. Is in Missouri. By himself. Backbreaking labor. Yeah. I mean, just imagine clearing a field with no tractor. Yeah. Like you're ripping stumps out with a horse, you're cutting yeah. the trees out. This is what Grant's doing. And all of a sudden, he inherits a slave. He's opposed to slavery, and now he has a free slave. It's like he didn't enslave this person, right? Uh, he didn't, but he also didn't, and he didn't ask for it, but here he is, this gift, right? And so he could make this guy do all this work he doesn't want to do. He could sell this guy and get money to pay someone to do all this work that's literally killing him. That Again, this is like a Harvard-trained guy. I mean, West Point guy, Point guy shouldn't be clearing fields and selling firewood. And, and Grant just gives the guy his freedom. And this idea of, like, do the right thing, damn the consequences, like, how, it's easy to say slavery is wrong. And what it, it's much – and to say that it's inexcusable and no human should – but imagine if in today's dollar you're handed something worth $250,000 right. and uh, 
it's part of a system that is legal. And and yes, you're opposed to it, but that was before you would benefit from it in any way. When it would literally, it might even save your life. And and the conventional wisdom. He was living in Missouri. Yes. These folks are better off in this position. Yeah. We take care of them, blah, 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 all that nonsense yeah. that that was sort of how they justified some, – yes. some of them justified it to themselves. These would all – like, you know, there's that saying from Upton Sinclair, it's hard to convince someone of something uh, that their salary depends on them not – Right. It's here, – here his beliefs are challenged by what he desperately needs and probably wants. And he does the right thing. And I, to me, I don't think he's explicitly a stoic, but like that's what – character looks like you know and and so i just find it so interesting that in in history class you know you have students not, you have kids not that far re- removed from high school they probably learned that grant that grant was a drunk yeah. that grants uh you know um Blood, bloodlust blood in the yeah. during the war, or and, that Grant's administration was, was corrupt, in, yeah, and, and all that, kinds that of they betrayed reconstruction. Yeah. What they didn't learn was like character. And real, like real character in the real world looks like, and and to well, me that just encapsulates everything. That's well, wrong also, with education. Cherno really re just looked at things carefully again. Yes, and the and the the what would you call it the the the, the journalistic excess. Yes, that that co- covered him. It's it's much like nonsense that goes on today. Sure, you know the, the people just get these outrages over stuff. That was an outrage time too. Well, you know, I've practiced medicine for a long time, and uh, I've noticed people really do not like wasting time in a waiting room. In fact, I used to, (laughs) when I myself was a patient waiting in someone else's waiting room, I would hear what the patients were saying, and I did not dig it. That's right. And then also, there's... (laughs) These days, you don't have to go to a physician for so many things. And that is, of course, true with Roman and Roman swipes. Clinically proven to help you last longer in bed. No prescription needed. Premature ejaculation treatments are safe, effective, and are used by millions of men. For Roman, there is a two-day free shipping. Again, that's right, free two-day shipping. And you can go to GetRoman.com slash Drew today. If approved, you'll get $10 off your first order. Again, that is at GetRoman.com slash Drew. Why not give it a try? The Roman swipes are proven to help. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. And a lot of men are not so uh, they're anxious about it. They don't want to go to a doctor and talk about it. But now Roman has you covered. Roman.com slash Drew. Go today. Jordan Harbinger Show. I'm telling you, go listen. Jordan named, Apple named his pod one of the best of 2018. It's aimed at making you better informed, more critical thinker. Like Jordan himself, Jordan, who has multiple degrees, multiple languages he speaks, toured, he's been all over the world, and he's actually been in, held captive more, more than once, I believe. Look at this recent guest, a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. Useful, disturbing at the same time. Another episode, cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle. Jordan is always focused on getting useful, practical insights out of his guests. And the episodes are, you know, loaded with bits of wisdom. So Adam enjoys it. I enjoyed it. You will enjoy it. We think you should listen to the Jordan Harbinger Show. That is H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. You can find him on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now a word for our sponsor, BetterHelp. I've been referring people to BetterHelp for quite some time. You've heard me talk about it for a while. And 
I, I get kind of worried that people are overlooking their mental health. And certainly that's something that has been overlooked through this pandemic. But uh, we've also learned during the pandemic that you can access help through electronic media and BetterHelp is here to provide that. BetterHelp is online therapy. They offer video, phone, even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And you certainly are not uh, subjected to any stigma of waiting to, you know, running into somebody in a waiting room. I know that people worry about these things. It's silly, but none of that applies with BetterHelp. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. We match with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is better, the help, the word better, P-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, one word, BetterHelp.com slash Drew, D-R-E-W. Yeah, right. Uh, Imagine if history in 150 years was written by like people reading uh, blog posts right. and tweets from today, how, right. how quickly you could get a false impression of things. Right. The other thing I loved about that grant book is – and I think it's another thing we should have learned in school – is like I, I got the sense that like we won the Civil War and this, this, I, this is what I'd always thought from what I learned in school. We won the Civil War but we didn't actually care about black people and so we just betrayed them after the war. We got almost there and we just betrayed them. What Chernow does an amazing job showing is how valiantly and how heroically Grant and other Republicans fought to not only uh, to, to, to pass the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment to, to make this country fair and just the insane resistance that they got and how close they got I know. to getting there. Ugh. And and so it's like I think about like what should what should we teach kids? Should we teach kids that it was hopeless and screwed and it was another time of American uh, of America falling short or should we said for all of our history we have been fighting to do the right thing against insane resistance and we almost get there and we almost get there and eventually we get there and then we have to keep going and going and going. And to no, me, that's never, also we never, stoicism. We never get all the way there. And and I that that whole book taught me about Reconstruction. I thought I understood it. Oh, my God. The violent – I really feel like Reconstruction was the most violent period against African Americans. Of, of it, it made slavery sort of a different issue. Yeah, because they, they before were, they weren't just trying to kill black people. They, black uh, people were property and, and then they were like, oh, let's just murder them all. But through marauding leftover Confederate soldiers, which t- yes. were gangs of war gangs essentially. They just walked around killing people. Yeah. Uh, uh, Frederick Douglass said we, you know, we, we, we gave up the lash for the shotgun. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. It's a, and it then was that horrendous. for Jim Crow, and it was just, yeah. oh my God, that history is just – I think, I think it was so traumatic we've turned away from it. Like we are not have not examined it properly yet. Yeah, I, and and look, that this is something uh, to nerd out about the Civil War that Grant and Sherman don't get credit for. We think like, oh, uh, we we don't quite understand how what Lincoln wanted. Lincoln had a much better plan for Reconstruction. Sherman and Grant had a much better plan for Reconstruction. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It's not just the tragic death of a president. It was the act of an insurgent terrorist, yeah. which set off like a two-decade wave yeah. of violence and lawlessness in this country. Yes. It, it may be the most effective act of political terrorism that you can think of, like on the scale of 9-11. Yes, and, because the, and it, the whole time they were afraid of reigniting another civil war. 
That's yes. what they thought they were going to deal with. And and when we accepted Robert E. Lee's surrender and, and where you have to give Robert E. Lee some credit is Robert E. Lee was worried about that happening. And so the idea of surrendering the army, ending the war, not dispersing these people as – you know, the, the army could have just melted off into the woods in the way that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, we saw in like a Vietnam or something where you're just putting down an insurgency. What happened in Iraq could have happened mm-hmm. in the United States. And the danger of a war is that it doesn't end. Right. And it did end, but then it really didn't end. And there was this horrible period of violence yeah. and awfulness. And, and, and what I didn't understand was the these – what do we call them? These gangs of war – of confederates? They're, yeah, these, they're like warlords. Warlords, almost. yeah. Became the KKK. Yes, that's who. That's where that came from. You want to know an interesting Civil War stoicism connection? Yeah. So a tra- like the one of the first translators of Epictetus into like American English, like publishing him in America, was a guy named Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Uh, who, Sound Southern? Uh, no, he raises a or black regiment of troops oh. in New England and leads them into battle in the Civil War. Oh, so, the movie was about that kid. It, right? It's not about that guy, yeah. but it's the same story. The same story yeah. of glory. You have a stoic. Uh, leader. And so, again, this idea that Stoicism is about resignation and, and, uh, and acceptance and not about human agency or doing the right thing for, for people who are abused or disenfranchised is just preposterous. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. It, do you still – do you read Marcus Aurelius on a regular basis still or does that, yeah. you get something out of that? All the time. And, I mean I have the benefit of writing about it, so I'm always referring to it. But I'm always – just it's to me it's like a bible where you're just sort of going and i'm going to read this for a little bit and and yeah when you were doing the partially examined live uh by the way we have we i interviewed uh mark and wes on this podcast you love that podcast i love that podcast yeah. it it really really filled out my philosophical understanding cuz i i was sort of I've been a dilettante all the time but these guys Converse about it in a way that's like being in a great symposium. Yeah, on the on the great philosophers. I think it was a three hour interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they go yeah. for hours. Wes Allman. Wes Allman. Yeah, uh, two eighty eight. Two eighty eight. Two eighty eight. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. Two eighty eight. Uh, but I, I believe they were getting on you also when you did their podcast about the the aside from the fact that Seth was bothered by accepting tragedy. Yes. There was also a problem about the the. The philosophical uh, enterprise of Stoicism doesn't really fit a typical philosophical enterprise. It doesn't have a stru- philosophical yes. structure to it. And and I think that's a good thing because when most people hear philosophy, they think, I don't have time for that. You know, they think like, uh, what? Like, I don't want this like complicated explanation of the universe. I don't want and, – and look, there Stay is – Stay away from Heidegger. Yeah, there, there is in Stoicism. There's like, – <clears throat> some of the Stoics talk about physics and they talk uh-huh. about all these things. But really the core Stoic text, when we look at like Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus, it's just life advice. Right. It's like how to live in the world, how right. to be a good person in the world, how to bounce back from adversity, how to conquer your temper. I mean like Seneca is just writing letters to his friend or he's writing – you know, he's Nero's tutor, which is a complicated you know, position. But like some of his things are just like – basically lesson plans for Nero. He's like – he writes this essay of of anger, which is like a, a really timeless essay about how powerful, important people have to be in control of their temper because the stakes are so high. And so it, in Epictetus – Epictetus is a slave. We don't even know if he could write. You know, his, his – um, his stuff was written down by a student. Yes. This is like if, if 
if you were a lecturer and you were I, I just observed your class for six months and I, I was like, these are the things that Dr. Drew says some are notes. important. Here are some notes. Yeah. yeah. Like a student asked him about this. Here was his answer. Yeah. And, and then I didn't put the question. I right. just said this right. is what Dr. Drew said. Right. You know, you would get a, a pretty expansive picture about what you thought. But there would be contradictions. There would be uh, – Things uh, would change over time. Omissions. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, But it would probably be much more helpful to people – than some systemic explanation about the universe. Right. And what, we, what I think is interesting is there is pretty strong evidence that Hadrian, who is the emperor, two emperors before Marcus Aurelius, he's the one— Hadrian's tomb. Yes. Hadrian chooses a man named Antoninus Pius to be his successor on the condition that Marcus Aurelius is adopted in turn by this guy. So he's, he, he, he knew Marcus Aurelius— but was not like the, – the, anyways, uh, <laughs> hey, there's, there's pretty strong evidence that Hadrian attended Epictetus's lectures. Oh, wow. He was, the, he was the emperor who spent more time in Greece than in Rome. He traveled the empire. He basically sort of turned it from a country of provinces to a, an empire with this endless travel. But again, just the idea that the most powerful man in the world is stopping in of in the philosophy classes of a former well, slave. But but in a way, the philosophy of the time was like talking to a great scientist or something. Yes. It's how's the world work? What's going on? What's your insights? Well, yeah, just you go back and you're like, oh, people have never thought about this before. Right. Like like when you go like how did – was Aristotle really that smart or was he just early? Like no, he, he was smart. No, but you <laughs> know, what, like Andy was early. He was although but, the pre-Socratics had a lot of stuff worked out that we just lost track of. I just mean it's like if nobody's ever written any of this shit down before, yeah. the first guy that does it seems like a genius. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Although he, he, I thought he was a pretty clear thinker. Yes, of course, of course. I just mean like that's how he's also a scientist and a biologist and a philosopher and right. a doctor. It's like because right. there wasn't that like. There weren't separate disciplines. Yes. It was all philosophy. Yeah. It's just like you're smart. You read books. <laughs> Most people don't. Right. You're a learned man. Yeah. Uh, and, and was there a relationship with the sort of religious uh, elements? I, I could never figure that out with Stoicism. I think it's a little of both. I mean there is like this weird – interesting – some interesting overlaps with Christianity and Stoicism. Number one, Seneca and Jesus – Born in the same year. Ooh. Walk the earth at the same time. I did not know that. Both find painful ends at the hands oh. of the empire. Oof. You know? Um, both appear in Tacitus, right? Tacitus is, talks about this guy, Christus, in Jerusalem, who's killed by the Jews. And then he's like, and then a couple years later, let me tell you about the death of this Seneca guy. You know, like, right. these are historical figures, something in the water, at, that this is all happening at the same time. Um, Seneca's brother, a guy named Gaio, it says real name, he changed his name, but appears in the Bible because he, I think he's lenient in the prosecution of St. Paul. Oh, interesting. So like it, to, the, to the Romans, to, in Marcus Aurelius and Seneca's time, Christianity is not the powerful faith. It's these rabble rousers who are getting in legal trouble all the time, and the Romans are the governors right. of these far flung provinces. These hippies. Yeah, these <laughs> disruptors. And so, so I just think that's really interesting. There's also a conversation with a Stoic philosopher at some point in the Bible, and then there is a fake letter. We're pretty sure it's fake, but it's a fake letter between like Seneca and St. Paul that some Christian made up in the like 
you know, 380. Seneca is your favorite Stoic? I, I like Marcus Aurelius most uh, and then Seneca I think is the most relatable because he's the man of the world with mm. a complicated day job. You know, he's ambitious. He's hypocritical. You know, all these things. I, I was explaining to my son the other day that, you know, the uh, this country was founded more on notions of the Roman Republic than Greece. Athens became – a focus of our affection in the 20th century, really. I got, I got a book for you to read. It's uh-huh. called Cincinnatus. Yeah. And it's a biography of Washington and the founders from the perspective of like who they – like exactly as you said. Who they thought they were. He basically says in this one point in the book, and I love this sentence. I think about it all the time. He's like, Washington accepted his commission in the Continental Army almost with the purpose of setting it down. Yeah. That, that yeah. to him, the the real theatrics, the real glory was not in winning the battles, not in accumulating the power. It was could a man give it up willingly? Mm. Because his hero was Cincinnatus. There's this Roman general who's called as a dictator. Like in Roman times, an emergency, they would name someone dictator. And Cincinnatus is named dictator. And then at the end of the war, he's the greatest, most you know beloved man in Rome. He says, I want to return to my farm. And this is what he does. Yeah. And, and so George Washington, because he's so inspired by this, by, by Roman life, by Stoicism specifically, which he's introduced to as like a 16-year-old, hmm. not unlike our conversation. Some, someone's like, hey, you should read this book. <laughs> and, and by the way, uh, Washington's like the only founder who can only read the Stoics in English. Like uh, Jefferson and Adams and the other ones, they can the read the Stoics in, in Latin or Greek oh or French. God. Oh, my like, God. Oh, crazy. Jefferson has Seneca in French on his nightstand. That, that's, oh. We forget how smart these fucking guys were. Right. right. Um, anyways. You're referring to us meeting when you were 18 and me saying yes. I was reading Epictetus. But, but so Washington, Washington is modeling in everything he does the, what he thinks the Stoics would do. And, and – to them, like the reason Stoicism was so popular, the most popular in the play in the world at this time is a play called um, uh, uh, Cato. And it's a play about Cato the Stoic. It's ironically like the Hamilton of its day. Oh, wow. Right? Like it's, Cato, I know he was a Stoic. Yeah, Cato, Cato oh, wow. is the towering Stoic philosopher. Oh, um, I never read his stuff. We'll talk lots about well. We'll talk lots about Cato in a second. Then, but so he's the he. It's and so there's all these like a lot of the most famous lines in the American Revolution are from this play. Really? So, give me liberty or give me death. It's from that play? Yes. I re- I regret that I only have one life to what? give for my country. These are cribbed lines. I thought they came out of their heads. No, it, and they so were in, in the, the way vapors. it makes it more beautiful, right? And then. Not only does Washington put on this play at Valley Forge, but his favorite line from the play is he says, uh, I per, he's like, I will put uh, things in the calm light of mild philosophy. Basically, like, I'm going to put things up to the test. I'm not going to react emotionally. I'm going to put them up for review. And over and over again, he just quotes it. Like, there's one two-week streak in like 1787 where there's like five letters from Washington with the same quote in it. The most – the greatest moment in American history that nobody knows about is after the war, we don't pay the veterans. Like, Oh, this we, is the, gla- the blindness yes, thing. We screw – we basically yeah. screw them over. Yeah. And Washington, they're planning to essentially lead a coup. 
They're yeah, going no, to they march were, on they Congress. Were, they were in up. There was an uprising that he addressed. There the, was insurrection. The American America, as we know, it's about to end. Yeah. Washington hears about it, and he rise, He's like, okay, I'll fix this. And he goes and he walks and he, he surprised. They don't. They don't know. He knows. He knows where they are. He walks into the meeting. And he confronts them about this, and he—it's he, this wonderful theatrical moment. For instance, he begins—he's, you know—he shows how old he is. He brings out his—he has to put—he's sorry, I have to put on glasses. He's, I've he's worn out a letter my from eyes. Jefferson or something, or for somebody, or maybe that he wrote. Yeah, or he wrote. Okay, I, but but and and he just basically shames these men because they see how much this – of all the people no, who haven't I know been the paid. Quote. I know the quote. Yeah. He says, I have not just gotten old in the service of my country. I'm afraid I've also gone blind. Yes. And they, and they just <gasps> – And you know what he says a few minutes later? He says, I urge you to put your feelings in the calm light of mild philosophy. Wow. He says – Think about what you're about to do. Do you understand this? You know, don't react emotionally. And he saves this country like a fourth time. Um, and and so again, I get so angry when people say stoicism is about resignation. <laughs> like th- this is a guy who his his sense of stoic duty repeatedly sends him into the breach over and over and over again. Um, my, can I do one more Washington story? Of course. All right. So this is another great one. So Washington early on in the war. Uh, the um, that Washington the 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 British troops are marching towards uh, Mount Vernon, and an overseer uh, rushes out. Do you understand? This is George Washington's house. Please don't destroy it. And back then, you know, they had these ridiculous like rules of battle. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was like this gentlemanly thing. Yeah, yeah. And Washington <coughs> finds out that this guy asked for special treatment oh, yeah. on his behalf, yes. and he goes. I would rather my farm burn to the ground and I lose everything I ever loved, like including my family, than to be given special treatment yes. on the account of who I am. Yes. Again, this is not a philosophy of resignation. This is a philosophy of like extreme personal it's like responsibility. like John McCain at uh, Hanoi Hilton. Of course. Same thing. Yes. Exact same thing, strangely. Yeah, and so I no mean, special treatment. We need to bring these stories instead of just talking about how Thomas Jefferson was a hypocrite for owning slaves. We should talk about how Washington was the only founder who gave up his slaves, and we should talk. But he about, kept them through his lifetime, though. What, do you know why? Because he didn't own them; they were his wife's slaves. Right, they're Martha's, right? But it, and there's another thing: we don't. Again, we can't understand history. We don't understand how complicated these things are. What Virginia does, like, we don't understand that basically slave owners had this country by the balls. Oh yeah, they use they used their the the. They used the fact that their slaves counted as votes in uh, Congress to to pass insane laws in this country. But anyways, in Virginia, partially related to what we're just talking about, not only uh, they they couldn't stop someone from freeing their slaves, but they knew if everyone was freeing their slaves and you could be pressured into freeing their slaves, like the system would not last very long. So if you wanted to free your slaves, you had to pay a pension for them so you couldn't just let them go. I, it kind of makes sense because you've you – You had know, to cover them. Yeah, but you had to cover them. So yeah. it was enormously expensive ca- in terms of cash to pay for – to. you're not only not selling them, you have to – basically pay back so much of what you've earned. And so Washington, it's not just that Washington lets his slaves free. He's the only founder who's financially responsible enough, who believes in the right thing enough that he saves and puts aside the money so they actually can be free. It doesn't excuse the horrible abuse that was slavery, but we should be talking about 
how did a guy do the right thing when pretty much did close to the right thing when everyone else is doing the wrong thing? And we should be learning from these examples, not just because when you just tear everything down and you make everything, everyone look like a horrible hypocrite, all you're left with is nihilism and, and despair. I'm afraid that's what some people want. I think that is what they want. And then, and then somehow that gives them an excuse to be more nihilistic and despair more. It's absurd. You know, as a result of reading the – or getting deep into that Grant biography, I've become obsessed with Frederick Douglass. Me too. Have you read his new biography? I have. What did you think of that? I thought it was good. Not as good as the Grant biography. No, a little not, long. Not, yeah, it wasn't written as well but, but full, filled with lots of interesting stuff. Let me ask you. It didn't seem like Frederick Douglass was a great father. No. Why do you think that was? Why do you think he's like, – Because of his traumatic childhood. He was so – so traumatized? Are you kidding? Yeah, uh, that he makes couldn't. sense. And it's it's alluded to in the biography, but he doesn't. He's not psychologically. The, the author is not psychologically sophisticated enough to to really flush it out. I mean, he can't. How could he have relationships? Sure, he could. He, he, it was amazing. He had as many as he did that were as rich as they were. Yeah, in my, sure. from my standpoint, I was like amazed that he was. That's a great point. You know, he was able to sort of maintain things. And as always, the trauma comes through to your kids. Okay. It comes through to your kids. And so he, he even though he was amazingly um composed and, and this unbelievably phenomenal human, he abandoned his kids for the most part. Because you know he He's was working, he was all, working the all the time. He was yeah. on the road saving slavery, you know, saving yeah. billions of people. And his wife his wife seemed like you know, she's a Uneducated, he, he treated overwhelmed her. woman. He treated her in not good ways. Right, but the only way he knew how. Yeah, sure. And, and I, so I, I, I don't I'm not excusing it. I'm explaining it. Sure. And and, and by the way, in spite of, I, I, I'm painting it a little too bleakly. Yeah. In spite of that, he bestowed tons of really rich, um, time and energy yeah. on his family. Yes, he really did. Yeah. It's just he was saving the world. Yeah, he was. And when people do that, they often forsake their family. Yeah. And then, and then if you add to that the trauma that he went through, oh my God! I think he's. I like. He's, I think he amazing. should be. <laughs> there's an argument that he should be like on Mount Rushmore. That he's like a second founder of this country. He, he, not only that, I think he's the he's the penultimate American. I think it, so. He, it's the it's the only truly American. You know, it is an amazing spun American experience. It's an amazing American story. I yeah. mean, you have this guy born into slavery. Uh, Thomas Sowell has this great line. He's like, uh, the the books, like when they give Frederick Douglass's books to uh, kids, like in schools, they have to put footnotes that like explain what some of the words mean. Mm. And he's like, here's a man who taught himself to read yeah. uh, under the threat of, of whipping or death. Yeah. And he has a greater vocabulary than rich private school kids in New York City. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, in fact, you know, his – Use and command of language was oh incredible, astonishing, uh, incredible. Like, whoa, this is like it's like a great musician. He's like he's born with something, and he went after it and, and educated himself. Yeah, and I mean, just one of the great scenes in all of it deserves to be in movies and tell it. This guy just decides one day I'm not going to be whipped anymore, and he just beats the shit out of his <laughs> slave owner, and it's such a brutal fight that it's almost like you know the slave owner is like I don't like this, but I respect you. Just do your work. And Frederick Douglass is like, okay, I'll do the work, but I'm going to you know, quietly plot my escape, and that's what he does. Yeah. 
and uh, just an incredible human being. Also backs uh, the right for women to vote. Like incredible. Like he wasn't one of those guys who was like hypocritical. Like right. he was he, – he really got it. He, he also um, – he was not a stoic in a real sense because he – Probably he, not. He, 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 but he, he certainly would have embraced it if he'd understood yeah. it or, or been interested in it. But he also reframed my understanding of something that – we don't have the right language for it yet. But he, he called it white supremacy. Yeah. And called Lincoln a white supremacist in, yes. in the opening chapters. I was like, what? I was stunned by that. And then I was convinced of it. Yeah. And at the same time was pragmatic enough to understand that Lincoln was an ally and that they could work together and get stuff done. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid to call him out. They, like, no, he was saying they, you, he needs to work away from yes. this thing that they're all infected by, which is white supremacy. Yeah. It, it's like – Frederick Douglass and uh, Lincoln have a relationship, not unlike Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, yes. or sorry, uh, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. Yeah. But you could also argue it's a similar relationship to uh, Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson, yeah. which is like this guy has the power. Uh, he's at least disposed to think somewhat kindly of my people and what I'm trying to accomplish, and we are going to work together. Whereas, like now. Uh, we are incapable of understanding how political change is done. Mm. You know, like just the idea in the political debates that Joe Biden is having to answer for the fact that he was friendly with some racist Democrats like 40 fucking years ago is bananas. Do you know how civil rights was passed in this country? <laughs> Lyndon Johnson was friends with all the segregationist su- Southerners. He tricked them into making him president and then he betrayed all of them. Yeah. Like, like that's how that wasn't. It's not a hundred years ago. Like some of those people are still alive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yes. we live in the world. Uh, we live in a world where imperfect people can, under the right situation, under the right pressure, with the right prodding and the right inspiration, may be made to do life-changing, wonderful things. Uh, and by the way, it's not about them espousing perfect philosophy, philoso- you know, perfect yeah. uh, positions. It's about changing them but what do they do yeah yes compromise with them getting them to to come come to the table i i wrote this piece a couple weeks ago about how anger is the problem not the solution and that we think political change comes from anger and it doesn't like that you think when when you read that book about frederick Douglass, you read it about uh grant you see all these angry people like slavery was a great evil and abolitionists were very angry about it but you know who wasn't really angry it was Lincoln. Like Lincoln was sad about slavery. He, he was he was mobilized by it. Yeah, he well, was he was moved to action. Yes, he 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 believed it was. It and was by the way, I, I feel weirdly that way these days about things like homelessness and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, there's certain things going on in our country. That like I, feel, I have to do something. I have to have to do it. That was him. He, yeah, he felt, when they overthrew the, the Missouri Compromise, he was like I. I have to do something. This this, is ridiculous. Well, there's this moment in Lincoln's life. He's getting off a riverboat and he sees a guy leading a chain of slaves. And he says like fish on a trot line. And this is this moment where he goes, this is awful. He doesn't – he doesn't – I'm so angry and he frees the slaves right there. He wages a multi-decade campaign to go from there to where he ends up. Right, because his original position was – Put it on the course to natural extinction. Yes. So he was going to allow it to live amongst us as long as was necessary. I mean, he, and he you could even talk about colonization. He, t- yeah. he explored oh, he a, everything. He was a big proponent of Liberian yeah. stuff, but you could call that all evil. 
Yeah. You could. Yeah. Because it was. Right. But he was trying to solve something that looked like it couldn't get solved without killing millions of people, but was willing to kill millions of people to get it solved, ultimately. Yeah, and, and one of the things I was saying in the piece is like, okay, look, here's why anger doesn't work. Uh, most people do not believe or are – and most people do not believe the wrong thing and are not doing the wrong thing because they are evil, right? They are doing – just like uh, I – when I was a kid, I grew up, I did not think gay marriage was a good thing because that's what I heard from my parents, right? Mm-hmm. Now I think differently. I wasn't evil. I was just wrong, yeah, right? right. And, and And so I don't – if I don't see myself as being evil for having wrong beliefs in the past, how can I say that other people are evil for thinking the wrong thing now, right? And so if, they don't, if they're not being evil on purpose, yelling at them is very unlikely to convince them of anything. Right. Being angry is not going to – and then for the actual evil people in the world, and there are many evil people, right? Yes. Some of them are currently serving in various political offices, right? Those people are way too dangerous – to be dealt with in anger. They are not angry. They are strategic. You don't yell at a sociopath to get them to change. You have to be – you have you to, nobody changes that way, by the right, way. Right. That, that we sort of live in a world where sort of what happens on a television show like Dr. Phil's show or somebody who yells at people, that's <laughs> going to change that. And people believe that. Yeah. Oh, no, no. That just puts people's barriers up. and they, they are very unlikely to respond to that no matter how hard you push. They just go on defensive immediately. Yeah. And you know, we used to say in, in treatment, we used to go barriers up. As soon as they put the barriers sure. up, that's it. You can't yeah. get through to them. Yeah, you have to. You have you just with sick people. What you do is just go. You, it's something called therapeutic wonderment. I wonder. I, you know, of course, you know the yeah. answer. You go. I wonder why you did that. I wonder what that would be. Hmm, what would motivate that? I wonder what that is. And that requires and restraint. The, requires empathy. It requires patience. wisdom too. Yeah. Just the, to know that you you can't get you cannot if if your goal is to affect change. Yeah. Anger is not going to do it. Yes, right. And, and yeah, someone like Martin Luther King, someone like Abraham Lincoln, someone like Lyndon Johnson, the people who affected the major changes of our times did so with strategy. They did so with compromise. They did so collaborating and, with morally and, imperfect people. Now that I think about it, when, when anger does create change or, or you know, uh, it usually does it in ways that are not just messy but um, problematic. Yeah, there's usually blowback or unintended consequences. I mean, look, just look at the Bastille and, and what happened and cut, cutting off the king's head and stuff. It's like yeah. well, everything that followed started with that. Yeah, <laughs> you compare the, compare the American Revolution to the French Revolution. One is much driven much more by anger and resentment. Mm-hmm. The other about a sort of positive vision for a different yeah, alternative. Absolutely. Um, I never thought about that, but that's true. Yeah. One is trying to build a country around a principle. The other is trying to – really, it's acting out. Yes. And, and then And then – they have some good ideas they're trying to put in place that they do through totalitarianism. Yeah, and eventually become susceptible to real totalitarianism. And then they eat themselves. Yes. And that's it. Yes. Yeah. Well, Ryan, listen, always great to talk to you. I, I could I didn't expect to go down the history path, but yes. but it, but I hope people understand that how a conversation in Stoics get gets us there. And that these are the questions you should be thinking about and and uh, wrestling with, and this is what will make the world a better place. Not what's Mueller's testimony going to be, right? You know what I mean. But but back to leading a good life and lead, doing what's right. If you don't study your history, you, it makes it harder to to know where you are, yeah, what's right and what's not. You really got to have a historical sweep to kind of help sure. guide you. 
and and that'll calm you down because you'll realize what's happened in the news is ha- what's happening in the news has happened before. But I also think it allows you. You know, when you look at someone like Washington or Grant or Lyndon Johnson or John F. Kennedy or, or these complicated figures. Because they're not the president right now and you don't have strong opinions about the issues they're dealing with, you're able to learn from them and be a little bit more dispassionate than you are when you're looking at what – you know, it's like – Well, in fact, I, I get – you know, I, I don't get that upset by what's happening these days because I keep thinking to myself, history, history is so complicated. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what's good or bad exactly. or what's, how it's going to play out. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean I don't like it but you know, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I, sure. And, and the one thing – somebody we did not get into today if we could have um, that I've been thinking lately is if I was around in 1901, I don't think I'd like Teddy Roosevelt. I don't, think, I don't think I like him at all. He Most was, he smart a, people did not he was like a, Peter he was, a, he was manic. He was narcissistic. He was impulsive. He was power hungry. He, he did, you know, when he was commissioner of uh, police in New York, he ran around just beating people up in the middle of the night. I would have hated that. Yeah, yeah. I would have thought the guy was nuts. Created a fake war with Spain for no reason. Bought battleships whenever he yeah. wanted to without consulting with anybody, let alone the American public. Took, I mean, really wild stuff that would have scared the hell out of me. And he did. And, People uh, thought he was like an animal. He was. Yeah. But he, in my reading, until I started thinking about it this way, he was my favorite president. Well, so when he was we a met for the he was a stoic. When we met for the first time, you told me to read Epictetus, mm-hmm. and you told me you were reading The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by yeah. Edmund Morris, which, which I, I read and totally loved. It was before the before Hamilton and Grant. It was really my favorite biography. Yeah, it just oh my god! So it it, and it is beautiful, amazing, beautiful, and uh, I was totally enraptured by it and stuck and swept in. And then I and then Theodore Rex was the one that followed that. Yes, and then I read a bunch of other ones about him, and uh, was taken by him. I think and a lot then I of started is, thinking about what it'd be like to live in that. I would not have done and it. I think a lot of that was sort of like alcoholic-y energy from his face. Like he was oh, yeah. a dry drunk oh, in the sense yes. of like he was bipolar. No, yes. Don't make any mistake. His, his brother committed suicide. His son committed suicide. His son committed suicide. Yeah. suicide. His, yeah. You know there was a, there oh, was, was darkness there. Oh, bad! It was mental illness. Yeah. He was mentally ill. Yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah. Good for history. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's the way it goes. So he was he was a mentally ill person with a very strong set of. Principles and duty that uh, that energy was mostly channeled towards positive ends. Thankfully, yes, could have spun out at any sure. time. But he was so he was one thing about him. I think very smart dude, super smart. Maybe with the smartest president we've ever had. I I suspect in that yeah. zone, and, and and that helped him. A he lot. only wrote well educated in too. He only wrote thirty eight books. I know you're like what? And, and one like was a natural history book. By the time he was eighteen or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he he had that guiding him. Thank God, yeah. And that helped. You know that sometimes people like that are very manic. They just are. Yeah. That's how they're able to do all that stuff. That they've got the engine going at a super high pitch. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, man. Uh, come back anytime. Always great to that. talk to you. Everybody, go get Stillness is the key. If you and if you haven't read all of Ryan's other books, go get them. You can pre-order Stillness on Amazon right now. It's out October first. And uh, Daily Stoic podcast available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Ryan Holiday, just like just like it sounds. dot net and at Ryan Holiday on Twitter. Anything else we need to pump out there? No, thank you. Great. I'll see you one next time. Yeah, we nerded out. I know, I know. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. 
The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with an undercover FBI agent posing as an Islamic terrorist. I grew up with the religion of Islam. After 9-11, my knee-jerk reaction was to simply help. But what blew my mind about this case was the fact that he was the epitome of evil. So we're going up to his apartment, and it was right next to Ground Zero. And he put his arm around me and looked up to where the towers were. And he said, Tamar... This town needs another 9-11, and we're going to give it to them. You'd think at that moment in time, I could have just gone up and did my job, but I couldn't. I imagined killing him right there and then. I imagined stabbing him in the eye with a pen I had in my pocket and leaving him for dead. To hear more from Tamar El-Nuri about what drew him to the exciting and dangerous life of undercover law enforcement work, check out episode 572 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. All month long, the biggest movies are streaming free on Pluto TV's Popcorn Summer Movies. Watch star-studded blockbusters like Titanic and Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Or fall in love with charming rom-coms like Hitch and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. The best part? Pluto TV is 100% free. No credit cards, not even a sign-up. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies, TV shows, and more. Download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free.